Welcome to Across the Desk and our new series in partnership with CASDA, the Canadian Autism Spectrum Disorders Alliance. This series is focused on the National Autism Strategy. We hope you'll join the conversation about how this strategy can help autistic Canadians have full and equitable access to the resources they need to live a full life. The time to have this conversation is now. Welcome to Across the Desk. My name is Elizabeth Plouffe, and I am the host of Across the Desk. And we are back once again with our uh, podcast in partnership with CASDA. CASDA is the Canadian Autism Spectrum Disorders Alliance, and they are working very hard to improve lives for autistic Canadians across Canada. And I was fortunate to join CASDA, I think it's three, three years ago, four years ago now. Um, and it's just an incredible organization that's doing great things and including autistic voices in the conversation is one of their key goals. And that's kind of where we're heading today is a, a conversation around COVID, yay COVID, mental health, how that's impacting autistic Canadians and how that's impacting caregivers and children in particular. So I am welcoming to the table or across the desk. Uh, Carly McMorris and Kaylin Turner and Rebecca Kitzinger. So you just see nodding doesn't work because it's a podcast and nobody can hear nodding. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> does that every year. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us. You're very welcome. This is going to be, I think everybody can relate to this on some level because this COVID timestamp for the podcast we are now in year 652 of the COVID pandemic. I think we have just passed 14 months. Where yeah. We at? 14 going into 15 months of the global pandemic of COVID, which has created impacts that nobody could have predicted. And because of the uncertainty and the impacts that nobody could have predicted, the University of Calgary has launched a fantastic study and I'm going to hand that part of the description over to Carly and Kaylin to introduce mm -hmm. themselves in the project. Great. Thanks so much for having me. It's great uh, to be here to talk about some of the work that we're doing. So my name's uh, Dr. Carly McMorris. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Calgary in the Workland School of Education. And I'm also a registered child clinical psychologist. Um, and a lot of my work, both um, from a research perspective as well as clinically focused, um, is really focused on how to improve uh, the mental health and well-being of kids um, and youth and young adults who um, identify as having um, neurodiverse or neurodivergent sort of learning needs. Um, so that includes um, autistic individuals, individuals with FASD, and individuals with cerebral palsy and intellectual disability. So um, that's sort of what we do um, and sort of the work that we're focused on. And then the Families Facing COVID study is part of um, that sort of broader research to really understand the mental health um, and how we can improve mental health in individuals um, with NDDs. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And Kaylin? Sure. Yeah. So I'm Dr. Kaylin Turner. I'm a postdoctoral researcher in the Enhanced Lab at the University of Calgary, which is, of course, led by Carly. Um, I'm also a registered psychologist in the provinces of Alberta and Ontario. And my research broadly focuses on understanding and supporting mental health needs in neurodiverse 
children, youth, and families. And I've been um, able to be a part of the Families Facing COVID study. So I'll be sharing some of the results with Carly today. Excellent. I'm going to jump in for a second and I'm going to introduce Rebecca. Um, she's got a fantastic bio. So Rebecca, do you mind if I jump in and read this? No, I don't mind at all. Go for awesome. it. Thank you. So Rebecca diagnosed autistic in 2012 is a prominent autistic self-advocate from Kelowna, BC. Since her diagnosis, her advocacy has included writing extensively about autism in the context of health and policy, which has led her to be featured in a multitude of mediums, including magazines, news articles, webinars, the radio, and she's been quoted at the Senate of Canada and now on podcasts. Woohoo! I have to update your bio when we're done. In addition to presenting her work at conferences, Rebecca is also a director at the Canadian Autism Spectrum Disorder Alliance, where she has published documents on language and autism. Most recently, she spoke at the United Nations Conference side event on the Convention of the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and is a founding member of the Canadian Journal of Autism Equity, where she continues her advocacy in championing the voices of autistic Canadians. Rebecca is also an Okanagan advisor for the Pacific Family Autism Network's Voices of Autism program. Rebecca is very creative. Yeah, I can attest to that. <laughs> Aside from loving to draw and write, she also appreciates cooking for her two boys acting out scenes from Monty Python with them and singing karaoke together. And I have no frame of reference for Monty Python, but I do appreciate a good karaoke session now and again. So fantastic. Okay. So jumping into this study, one of the reasons Rebecca's joining us here today is that lived experience is such an important part. And this incredible study focuses on the lived experience of caregivers. Um, and so Carly, I think you were had, leading off with the child and youth data. Yeah, so maybe I'll just give a little preamble about the study and, and what it was looking at. And then uh, Dr. Turner can sort of talk a little bit about some of the findings we're, we're seeing or the, the trends we're seeing so far. So uh, the Families Facing COVID, as I mentioned, is a national study. It's a collaboration between myself uh, Dr. Jonathan Weiss at York University, Dr. Connor Kearns at the University of British Columbia. And the three of us came together to really start thinking about, we wanted to understand how the pandemic was impacting caregivers um, and neurodiverse individuals. We are specifically interested in just trying to understand what are maybe some of the struggles people are experiencing, but also maybe some of the things that are going really well, or what are the things that are maybe working for families, um, and, and where are some places that they maybe need extra support. Um, as we all know, this pandemic has been long, um, and it's been quite um, impactful, and that's an understatement on most of our mental health. And so we really wanted to understand the mental health component and how maybe some of our findings could really improve um, supports, um, maybe improve interventions that might be effective um, for neurodiverse individuals. Um, and so we launched this study in June last year, the first wave of the study, um, and it's a national study, as I mentioned. So we recruited over about 700 caregivers of autistic individuals. Um, and so, we did also recruit individuals who identified as having FASD, as well as, uh, sorry, caregivers of individuals who identified as having FASD and cerebral palsy. But for today, we'll just be talking about the results from um, caregivers who have autistic children. Um, and 
In terms of what we found or the people who responded to the study, we had, as I mentioned, 700 caregivers. Um, most respondents were from various different provinces. So Ontario, um, BC and Alberta uh, were our primary sort of responders. Um, and in terms of just the numbers of people from different age categories, et cetera. So we had um, about most of the individuals who participated, they identified that their child was quite young. So the mean age was about 10 years of age. Um, which we recognize um, we love to have sort of more variability, but that was sort of who responded. But just to keep that, that in the back of your mind, um, as well as about 45% indicated that their child's autism symptoms or traits were moderate to severe. Um, so we had quite a well-rounded range, I would say, in terms of autistic traits. And then majority, as I mentioned, were from Ontario um, and identified as being white. So just to give you a, a sort of tidbit about the what data pool. the people yeah. exactly of the people who yeah. responded um and i'll turn it over to kaylin to sort of describe what we found in the children data sure yeah so um we found a couple of different things but i'll just highlight a couple of findings so as carly mentioned we were really interested in how are autistic children and their families doing during the pandemic and we looked at a couple of different areas. So we were interested in understanding what was sort of going on for them in regards to their autism characteristics, what was going on for them in terms of some of their social emotional um, symptoms or experience, and then what was going on for their overall mental health. And of course, this was all according to the parent report of their child. So it's the, the child's parent reported mental health in this study. So a couple of um, things that we found is that about half of the caregivers in the study agreed that their child was experiencing more autism characteristics than prior to the pandemic or than usual for that individual. Mm -hmm. So this was things like experiencing more restricted or repetitive behaviors, experiencing more social communication challenges, experiencing more sensory sensitivities or difficulties, and experiencing greater interest in special topics or um, special objects. We also found that about half of the caregivers reported their child to be experiencing more behavioral difficulties at home, as well as greater anxiety or feelings of worry and lower mood or more sadness than usual. So like we said, not all children experience worsening of these types of symptoms, but about half did experience worsening in those areas. Caregivers also talked to us about a number of different concerns that they were thinking about. Um, so just to give you a couple of examples that really stood out, caregivers were feeling really concerned early on in the pandemic about their child reconnecting socially with their peers. That was something they were thinking a lot about. And caregivers also reported to us that they were thinking a lot about their child's lack of physical activity during the pandemic, That's as well as their screen time, their use of screens was, was something caregivers were thinking a lot about at that time or having some concerns about. So again, those were things that, um, that came up. Um, yeah, the other area that we asked some questions about was what was going on with their professional support services. As Carly mentioned, that was an interest of ours. 
And so we did find that most families had disruptions to at least one and oftentimes several of their professional kinds of services. So that might be things like behavior therapy, um, speech language therapy, occupational therapy, access to their medical um, pediatrician or psychiatrist, et cetera. And so we found that about 62% had experienced services being canceled Ooh. altogether. Again, this was early on in the pandemic, but that oh, was that's terrible. a lot. Um, many services became temporarily unavailable, and then about half of individuals reported that some services transitioned to a remote service delivery, so some type of virtual platform of service delivery. We did see families reporting um, quite a bit of overall disruption to their everyday life, so their household was, was quite disrupted from their usual routines. Um, and some families reported experiencing financial hardship and difficulty accessing essential goods, so a shortage of essential goods that they might need in their home. In terms of the child's um, parent-reported mental health, so we did see a difference when caregivers rated their child's pre-pandemic mental health prior to the pandemic compared to currently at the beginning of the pandemic. There was a significant difference with an overall worsening of the child's mental health during the pandemic. And so this difference was, was slight. It wasn't a huge kind of difference when we look at the, at the number of how they were rating the child's mental health, but it was a significant decrease. So that tells us that caregivers were perceiving their child's mental health to be impacted in, in sort of a worsening way. Yeah, so maybe I'll pause there, um, Carly. I know we have other things we can talk about, but maybe I'll pause there and see what else comes up. What do you think? Well, so Rebecca's made some, some excellent points in the notes that she shared ahead of time. And, and one of the things that um, she mentioned in her notes, uh, I've seen increased anxiety and hyper-awareness of what others um, are or are not doing with their personal space with kids. Um, for example, my children have feelings that range from concern to upset to outrage when they encounter people not following the rules by not socially distancing or not wearing a mask when in public. And I, honestly, props because I have the same reaction. Um, and But um, Rebecca also made a really valid point at the beginning of our conversations, like before we came on, that if you happen to also not only have a, a diagnosis of autism, but also this, uh, and I'm going to say it incorrectly. So please feel free to correct me, Rebecca. Alex is me. Alex, say it for me. Alexithymia. Thank you. And I have a medical background. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Based, based on what you're saying, Kaylin, that if it's difficult to verbalize your emotions to begin with, then trying to grasp the enormity of what's going on and gaining any kind of, not even just gaining understanding. Cause I, I think we could all raise our hands and say, there have been moments where we're like, I just don't get it. I don't understand what's happening to my brain. It feels like a little bit of Swiss cheese with some crazy cats thrown in there. So Rebecca, did you have something that you were going to, I was going to say that autistic people and autistic children, we thrive on predictability and familiarity yes. and COVID has um, taken so much of that away with taking, um, eliminating their routines in our lives. Um, this abrupt uncertainty increases the anxiety in, mm -hmm. uh, in ourselves and takes away that predictability and familiarity 
um, from adults and, and from children. And so when you um, add to it the alexithymia condition of not being able to identify these complex emotions and express them and the confusion between um, emotional and bodily feelings and stuff like that, it's... Um, it doesn't help your anxiety at all. You're just still stuck with it and you're stuck with even more of it now that the pandemic's happening. So that's just what I wanted to say is, is that without that predictable and familiar kind of routines, anxiety will increase. Yeah. And that's, and keep going. Sorry. Sorry. I was just going to say, I think that that is, is something we see in the literature and in the research as well, is, is that this intolerance of uncertainty, um, which we all experience, but I think at, during COVID has been just amplified, right? As you oh, said, Rebecca, is, is that we, we have no way day to day even to control what's happening, where we're going to go, we're going to go to school, do I need to go to work, who's going to be at home with me, what do I need to do? Um, and that creates such high anxiety. And then you think about what Kayla was talking about with this um, reduction, even sometimes canceling of essential services that support a reduction in anxiety or our kids' anxiety. That just, I think those two things combined. And then, as you said, with the alexithymia, there's nowhere to communicate or it's difficult to communicate those kinds of complex feelings. It's the perfect storm for, I think, those mental health issues to kind of continue to grow over the pandemic. The spiral. And that's, and so we work with, um, one of the other things that I, I do, I have a not-for-profit called Socially ASD, and we have a board that's 60% of autistic um, individuals. And we've noticed, like we've had to actually up our board meetings. Um, so we're meeting every week, which as a, if you're on a board, you know that you don't meet every week. But we recognized very early on that this was the only way to provide some kind of social connection. And because our, our whole intent had been to provide an opportunity for face-to-face meetups. And when COVID hit and wiped that out, we were like, okay, how are we going to evolve around that? And how yeah. are we going to support people as best as we can, as safely as we can, um, and discuss what's going on? Um, and to Rebecca's point, when you're dealing with something so complex, like the pandemic, when you already have a mental health issue that you're dealing with, it adds another layer of complexity on that, that makes it doubly difficult to talk about. And we've had some great conversations with our board who over time have brought up things that they're dealing with. And then as a team, we come together and, and problem solve, but they can't access their counselors. They can't access the other social outlets that they would have had their sleep is disrupted, their outdoor activities are disrupted. And, and we're seeing that impact. We're seeing, you know, our poor dog is exhausted because she's out for walks two to three times a day. And I think that was an oversight by the governments when COVID started that when everything shifted to being done virtually or being like in a, when a lockdown situation happened, the impact that that was going to have on, on the artistic community, like it's, um, 
there's lots of ways that we can cope and have resiliency to manage through this, like eating well, sleeping well, a balance of screen time, staying active, but staying connected to your support network of professionals during the lockdown is still super important. Right. And um, and what that looks like completely got changed. You, with what you, you were saying, Carly and Kaylin, like um, how, they weren't even accessible for a period of time and um and then done remotely and so i can say for myself setting up for my kids it's even hard to set it up remotely so sometimes mm -hmm. we're not even making those appointments because it's too challenging to schedule mm -hmm. it an appointment a professional appointment remotely and um where we'd rather do it in person and, and stuff like that. So uh, I think that that was, I think it was an oversight when they just kind of switched and said, okay, cancel everything and had no thought to what the impact would be um, on the mental health and shaking down of the routines and stuff like that. And I think that's where, that's an extremely valid point, Rebecca. And I think that this is where the study that Carly and Kaylin are, are doing is so vital because this is the kind of data that's required to inform ongoing decisions. And I think we've opened up an opportunity to have a dialogue with the powers that be over what this could look like rolling out, because there are going to be people who are permanently impacted by this situation who will never again feel comfortable having a, a traditional face-to-face -face, um, meeting, you know, it just, who knows, right? Like we don't know the long-term effects. And so based on what Rebecca's saying and the findings that you're, you're discovering, what are some of the, are you able at this point or has anybody said to you what some kind of long-term predictions there might be? Like in terms of impact um, long-term on the autistic community? Yeah. Yeah, it's I mean, too early I to say. I feel like it might be too early to say, and we need some more data. So that's always I, with my researcher hat. I'll I'll just say <laughs> that that you know what I'm about to say has no foundation in data. Um, yeah. But anecdotally, I think I mean all of us, whether you know autistic or not, I think we're all feeling sort of that languish or that burnout feeling. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that just is. Um, given sort of some of the things that we talked about, whether it be service disruption, intolerance of uncertainty, you know, mental health issues, that just makes the picture so much more complicated and more, um, I think the impact as we go on more, you know, challenging or negative, unfortunately. And so I agree. I mean, we clinically are seeing kids who are saying things like, oh, being online is great because I don't actually have to go to school right now. Mm -hmm. um, and I've got high social anxiety. And so people have asked me, so what does that mean in the long term? And I said, well, short term, it's okay. Right now, you know, kids are feeling like, okay, I can engage in school in a way that maybe I haven't been able to before. But the reluctance when things open up again is even going to be higher because anxiety has been so um, minimal 
right? I mean, all of us, I mean, if, if I was feeling anxious to go to work or to school and someone said, you don't have to go me getting back into the game a month later, my anxiety is going to be twice as much as it was pre COVID. You've had no so exposure to it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and we've taken away a lot of the coping, as you said, we're, you know, lacking sleep. A lot of us are juggling multiple responsibilities in terms of caregivers. You know, we're all, um, I think on our, we're all burnt out. And so our, our coping strategies are also at a minimal um, as well. And so those two things combined, I think there will be, you know, this negative impact in terms of mental health. And, and I really would like us to start thinking proactively about, okay, how can we then put in types of services that will meet the needs, the unique needs that these, that autistic people or people who identify as being neurodiverse really need during this time um, to yeah, prevent. Definitely, definitely going to segue yeah. to there. And, and you make a valid point though, that I think some people forget. Um, and I think when Carla, when you and I were chatting, you mentioned that you've got your four and a half year old son at home. Um, my kids are 23 and 22 makes them no less annoying. And, <laughs> you know, and Rebecca's got two boys that are, that are at home. Um, that, that adds another layer of complexity as well, because typically you get a break from each other. And you get an opportunity to engage differently with different people, which builds different skills and potentially contributes to actually lessening of anxiety because you have a, a break from somebody and, yeah. and you can engage on a different level and engage interests, right. That you might not share with your family members. Um, and Rebecca made a point in, I'm going to pull this in here. Um, in addition, just to round this and we'll get into the positives. In addition, the, um, the increase in time spent at home over the year has meant a considerable increase in screen time for the kids. Mine too. And Thank us. You. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which I'm concerned will be difficult to walk back past COVID. And that's completely valid. I know that there are some studies where autistic children have thrived with the use of technology and screens, but there is probably a balance somewhere in where too much screen time impacts negatively on the child. And, um, Dr. Temple Grandin wrote a book called The Loving Push, and I felt like the meanest parent on the planet. My son is on the spectrum, just context, um, 23 and doing okay, but I wasn't a gentle mommy when he was younger and, you know, got in trouble for being very routine oriented and huge expectations on not a lot of screen time and whatever else. Um, and she wrote a book. And in that quoted a study that explains how overuse of technology can actually reinforce the negative neural pathways and the antisocial and anxiety behaviors in autistics, because you are in control of your universe at all times on a screen. And when you are then put into reality where that's out of your control, understandably, not a criticism by any stretch, spikes anxiety. We have a board member. Um, who I have to constantly ask to turn her phone over because she is, she's addicted to her technology. Um, and that face-to-face, -face, even through Zoom, is becoming more challenging because she can't control a narrative and she can't control the conversation and that you can tell that it spikes her during the meetings. Mm -hmm. So the positives are if you've recognized that, right? So for Rebecca to have written that, she's recognized that that's an issue. What are some of the things that your team has seen that caregivers are, are trying to do to mitigate 
the potential long-term effects of this? Yeah, and so I think one of the things I just want to highlight is we asked, um, we conducted the first wave of this study way back in June, June Mm -hmm. and July of last year. And so at that time, a lot of caregivers were saying, you know, we're really trying to make things consistent and routine-based because that's Mm -hmm. really helpful. We're trying to connect with our kids wherever possible and and be grateful slash be in the moment whenever we can. We're trying really hard to sort of have limits on technology and the technology that we're using. We are trying to engage with our kids around or those kinds of things. You know, I, I, I myself and with my own family have recognized that there's been ebbs and flows in terms of those sorts of things over the pandemic. So, 100%. right. And I think one of the things I tell people is even in our therapy groups is to our caregivers and our kiddos that some days you just have to survive and that is the yeah. goal. Right. Um, and I think sometimes by giving ourselves that permission to just be okay with today's the day that my kid's going to want me on the screen. Um, I'm going to binge watch okay. baking shows. And I'm okay with that. (laughs) Right. And I'm okay with that. um, Because this has just been going on longer than I think anyone anticipated. But I do want to highlight, I think there are some things that families are recognizing as being helpful, or or the positive impacts. And I I don't want to say that lightly or dismissive, because I think this has been a huge impact. So I don't want to focus on that. But some families are saying, I would have never had this time with my kid if I, if the pandemic didn't happen, you know, um, we're not rushing to appointments all the time. We're sitting around the table and playing board games, which we didn't get a chance to do. And so there are some silver linings. Again, I think that's ebbed and flowed since maybe June and July when we first asked these kinds of questions. Kaylin, what is your sense? Cause I know you, you also have been looking into the data um, around this. So what's your sense? Yeah, no, I would really agree with a lot of the things that you've said, well, everybody's been saying, and Carly, that you just said, I think for the screen time specifically, yeah, like, you know, you heard me mention that our caregivers were thinking about that as well. And like Rebecca, when, when um, Elizabeth read your comment, I'm just like, that's what we're hearing from caregivers as well, is how do we find this balance, there must be an in between. And I think caregivers, from what we're hearing, are really, they are struggling to know where that is, like, Mm -hmm. the balance. um, the balance, yeah, mm-hmm. to kind of draw that line. But yeah, I think in some of our therapy groups, we've definitely heard families who are finding really creative ways to spend time with one another, oftentimes right now outdoors while the weather is facilitating that. And people who have shared with us that they've discovered like beautiful oasis in their backyard, in their community that they really hadn't spent time in or noticed before. And now they're bike riding there every day as a family. And so we're hearing those pieces too, that these are strategies families are finding and that are alleviating some of the feelings of worry and tension. Um, yeah. Well, it's addressing that, like Rebecca made a valid point about physical activity and how important that is because that impacts sleep and that impacts diet. And I know at the beginning of the pandemic, my <laughs> it was this zombie apocalypse prediction. You have to go and get water and toilet paper. And I, you know, I said to my husband, I'm like, all I need is flour. If you can make sure that I can get flour and eggs, we're good because I can bake and cook and I, we don't have to rely on, I think part of the pandemic um, crisis was around a scarcity of prepared food. 
And, you know, I think that could be a silver lining as well, that people rediscovered baking and cooking and healthier potential, hopefully healthier eating habits that can only have a positive impact. Like you do the best you can with your circumstances. And if you have to rely on boxed and prepared foods, you do the best you can. There's not a criticism, but I think there's so many opportunities that, like you mentioned, um, Rebecca was sharing in here how museums, art galleries and libraries and programs were such a part of their routine. I have to tell you, the day I discovered I could do book pickup at my library, I was like, because we couldn't 100%. do that for a while. And I was like, that's an outing. Yeah, I can, I can book my books online. They will pick my books for me and I get to drive somewhere safely pick up my books and I'm a happy camper. <laughs> yeah, we moved downtown into an apartment right across from the library, right across from the museum, wow. and right across from the art gallery uh, one month before COVID started. So oh. our plan was to be centric to all of these sources that we are so into and that the, kid, the kids are so um, into. And then the lockdown happened, like, just as we were unpacking. <laughs> that would be a bit of a tease, wouldn't it? To have it sitting yeah. across from you. And going, yeah, it was, it was pretty sad. So our passes expired as the months went by. And, um, you know, so now the library is kind of semi open and we can go in there now and stuff like that. But um, like I was saying earlier, the kids are really um, hyper aware of the rules and stuff like that. And so their levels of anxiety are, are quite high about wearing masks. And, you know, that person didn't sanitize yeah. and I don't feel comfortable right now. And so it's just a whole new tone. And I wonder how long until we can get back to the cheerful tone that we were like at the library. This is so much fun, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And stuff like that. So no, I think that's extremely valid. And I have the same reaction. I was, I was in a grocery store a few months ago, it was well before the vaccine was, was even on the horizon. But I'm always, especially with our senior population, always very cognizant of my distance. And I was at a bulk, I was getting something. And this senior was like literally two feet away from me and leaning in and are you almost done and whatever. And I could feel like every fiber of my being going, I I can't, I was blocked in on two sides. And finally I turned and I said, so hi. So that's not even close to six feet. So <laughs> if you could do me a solid and back up like two steps, that would be terrific. Yeah. Oh, am I too close? I'm like just mm-hmm. a, just a lot. Yes. I said, if you just give me a second, I, I'll be done and I'll be out of your way. She comes back in again. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> and that I'll, I'll be interested to see how long it will take me before. I think strangers now will always cause me a bit of concern. I don't think I will, because that awareness now of overall germ spreading, this is the yeah. first year I haven't been sick, no cold, no bronchitis. And I get bronchitis and whatever every year in March first year ever, nothing. And I think that will always play in the back of my mind. And now we have enough masks. So to your point, Rebecca, come November, I don't think I'll have a problem 
regardless of where we're at in the pandemic of pulling the masks back out to go in public and judge me all you want. I don't want to get sick again. And they're effective washing my hands and having sanitizer everywhere. That's effective. And maybe that's a messaging from an anxiety perspective that, you know what, we've learned a lot from this. And there are some really good things that we've learned out of it, such as, especially for little kids, we really have to be careful about washing our hands and not touching our face. That's a really good thing that we can do all the time to stay healthy. Yeah. The strategy becomes, how do we, how do we employ those, those tools, you know, washing your hands and using sanitizer and wearing a mask and also reduce the anxiety around it. Agreed. Um, yeah. so that you're using, you're doing that and that's a part of your routine, but it's also not a stressful part of your routine. And yeah. I think if it's that focus on this is a healthy way to maintain, you know, our health, um, and it's situational, if we're at the park and we're outside and there's no people around us, this is safe. We can, we can take the mask off. And I think it's also being led by the caregivers and parents. If we are transferring, because I've done that to my kids, if you're transferring your anxiety or your fear around managing this, kids are smart, little monkeys. Mm-hmm. They, we, we have to lead that. So maybe part of that ongoing conversation is how do we as parents and caregivers and, and the adults in the room move forward with our own anxiety and model that? for the kids is that or am I talking out of my head Mm -hmm. that's possible no for sure no for sure and just speaking to Rebecca's point I mean we um, as I mentioned we run um, groups for autistic kids who also have anxiety and we're running our first virtual version of that group right now Um, and the fears that are so we talk a lot about you know is this a real fear or is it a false alarm so is my body telling me that something's too scary and it actually isn't that scary or is this like a real danger and um people with anxiety that's a hard thing to determine sometimes our mind gets really active we talk about and so we kind of misjudge or we're hypersensitive around what's a real danger versus a false alarm and we're seeing right now that autistic kids are really fearful of covid and uh, for us as facilitators and their caregivers that's a real danger. Like that is a fear, right? That's a, that's a scary thing that can happen, but we talk a lot about modeling then what that, what we can do, what's in our control of, um, you know, what can we sort of take away some of that uncertainty and really try. So like you talked about, um, washing hands, wearing masks, et cetera, can be really valuable, but the anxiety around it is something that I think we're going to have to continue to work on because if things open up, well, how do we make, you know, how do we communicate that it's okay for right now, but it might not be in a little while. And then as we sort of already talked about it, it increases that intolerance of uncertainty, I think. Um, and then that chaos. Yeah. And I'm worried about when things open up, because what is that going to look like? It's probably going to look like a lot of people still working um, from home or, or remote uh, appointments. So remote appointments aren't always great for everybody very true and so I think if if um if it's overlooked the impact that that'll have on on a community like the autistic community the autistic Canadians um 
then then that's a poor oversight. I think that it's critical today to increase support programs to help autistic Canadians create routines and allow them to be fully included within society. That means going to in-person appointments because that's what's best suited for them. Um, living independently and with their mental health in balance. So if seeing their psychologist in person is, you know, better. a better option for them, mm-hmm. they, they shouldn't, that shouldn't be a barrier. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. And I think Absolutely. There's, a, there's a ton of lessons, not only through the project that Carly and Kaylin have, have begun, um, because the conversation that we've had is that there's an opportunity for hopefully expansion on, on what you started, because for, for me, only speaking for me, data really helps me with anxiety. Data really helps me with a feeling of control and understanding. And if I understand a situation better, then I tend to react better. I tend to sleep better. I tend mm-hmm. to not stress eat. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff. And I think one of the things to Rebecca's point that the government this has been a challenge on many levels in that when you are looking to care for millions of people and trying to get messaging out during a time where nobody knows what's coming, because what happened in Italy and China and what happened in England and what hap- what's happening in India and what's happening in the U.S. is completely different than what's happening in Canada. And so where does our data come from? It comes from, ironically, lived experience. And the only way it becomes an experience is to live it. And I don't mean that tritely, right? Like, so the government is reacting as best they can with millions of people in mind on how do we move forward safely? Yeah. How do we get people back to services in whatever capacity works best for them? So Rebecca, to your valuable point that if face-to-face are better for you, like I, I'll be honest with you, when COVID first hit, I was networking so much. I was like, I get to not go out for a little while. (laughs) And then six months later, I was like, dang, (laughs) that's careful what you wish for. So I think it's, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I think one of the things that our, our data really speaks to is that um, caregivers are also really impacted right now. And um, I think caregivers of any kids are being impacted. So I don't want to say that it's just specific to the autistic population, but there is caregivers who are, as we know, taking on responsibilities from multiple places. So they're the educator, they're the care provider now because services are challenging to access. They're trying to um, manage their own sort of employment and and those sorts of pieces. So they're taking on these multiple roles. And what we're seeing is is that a lot of families are saying that they're stressed and they're anxious about how to manage all these competing demands. Um, And that although they might have some coping strategies, one of the caregivers that I spoke to said, the care, like all the coping strategies I had in my toolkit were out the window the first day of COVID. Like they're just, they weren't, they weren't fit for a pandemic and, and trying to manage all these multiple needs. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think that's something too, that I would really highlight is, is that caregivers also need 
their child to be supported in the right way, because that helps them then with their own mental health, I think, in trying to provide support in ways that they can manage and that are reasonable instead of trying to take on all of these responsibilities where then I think they burn out as well. Um, And so that's something that our data really talks about and, and that there's a temporal change in that as well. So I spoke with one mom who said, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, it was kind of like, okay, we got this, like, we're good. We, We can do this. But then when they got it back into school and services were different and now we needed to go back to school when anxiety was the highest. And dealing with all of these rules, um, that was when it was really hard. And especially if, you know, for example, any educational support. So here in Alberta, sometimes that was left up to parents to just figure it out. Oh. You know, you're I, right. And so who that, has the I background think, for that? Nobody that, can come to the no. table. And I, so again, my son's 23, but I've done the whole public school. He was diagnosed at, well, brought to our attention at two, that something was a little kooky finally got a diagnosis at seven, then got him retested at nine. And now we have a triple diagnosis of autism, dyslexia, uh, and ADD. Plus he also had um, asthma, eczema, and anaphylaxis. Um, So who can, who can then add on to that school expert, phys ed expert, nutritional expert, (laughs) counselor, like that's kooky. It's just too much. Yeah. It's just too much. It's not reasonable. It's not, it's not reasonable by any means. Um, and I think we all know that kids do best when their parents are doing really well too. And so we need to be mindful of supporting, I think both caregivers and kids throughout this pandemic. And when I say kids, I don't just mean, you know, 10 year olds. I mean, kids across my kids are still my kids. We know. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, and there's just different challenges. So going to, you know, people who are in, in university who are autistic and that change of everything had to be online and all these things that you planned on, you know, and, and the consistency changed and that's really problematic and, and exhausting, right? So oh, it is. Zoom meetings in general, but I mean, and that actually, so there's, there's two things because Rebecca made a really valuable point here, but I just wanted to to your point about going to university online, there is a common myth and misconception that all autistic people love IT and love computers. That is not the case. Um, my son could not tell you the business end of a computer. He knows how to turn it on. He knows how to do what he's got to do and he knows how to close it. So that misconception, I wonder, feeds into some of the issues where if yes. you perceive that a community does better online and you're not informed about that, then you could be making decisions on behalf of that community that are extremely ill-informed and ill-timed and have that negative impact that Rebecca was referring to about the preference for face-to-face and the benefits that come with that. Because when your autistic child is forced to engage in a public school system, there are skill sets that get built and in in, can be in a positive way. Don't get me wrong. We had some hiccups in his uh, school career, but they have to, you have to realize it's, you meet one person with autism, you meet one person with autism mm-hmm. and trying to create a blanket solution for an entire community based on what you think, you know, never going to go well. Um, 
so Rebecca, if you don't want to share one more thing from your notes here, because you're um, to Carly's point about caregivers, mental health, she says, for me, it's really important to know when to say no and to know why saying no sometimes is important for mental health, the relationship between taking on too much and mental health. A lot of times I have a hard time saying no to projects, positions, and events, because I feel like saying no will disappoint the person I'm saying no to. And I mean, who is worse to disappoint sometimes than your kids? Um, but as she says here, it can end up having a disproportionately negative impact because when you are everything to somebody, what do you say no to? Right. And how do you balance that with the long-term effect of screen or getting outside or, you know, diet or whatever. So Rebecca, I love that you shared that because I think saying no is right now and especially a huge challenge for caregivers because where do you put your energy to have the most positive impact yeah it's really hard to know when you're taking on too much and i think um as an self-advocate you want to take on all these projects you want to do so much because you kind of know that it like I think oh it's the right thing to do and you're kind of full steam ahead but then you're risking um you're risking mental health issues like anxiety and depression and autistic burnout at a much higher rate than some of your non-autistic allies and and I I've experienced that I think it was like last fall I started to get burnout and it was really unpleasant. Like I had to start dropping projects and and I wasn't even very good at home. <laughs> I was getting so tired. So uh, it's just, I don't even know if it's a skill saying no is a skill. I don't know if you oh, can Oh, it's say absolutely that. a skill. Yeah. Oh, just 100%. Just lo- look in the mirror and just say like, say no, like you have to practice or something like that. Honestly, <laughs> truth. That yeah. is an extremely true statement. That, you can do that. Yeah, no. Well, I'm okay with saying no. <laughs> but there have been times where I have not. Because as you say, it's the right thing to do. And what do you give up? Do you give up the stuff for your kids? Or do you give up the stuff for your work? Or do you give up for, the stuff for the house? I stopped for, vacuuming. There you go. For myself, <laughs> I, I think about it too much, right? I think, I'll consider this. And so while I'm considering the project or the event or whatever it is for the kids, I'm thinking, oh, that's a great idea. If I don't do it, it might not get done. And then it doesn't get done. And it's such a great idea. So I better say yes. And so then I do say yes. And then I'm doing this. And then something else comes up. And they're like, hey, Rebecca, do you want to do this? I'm like, yeah, I do want to do that. That's a great idea. And I should do it because if I don't do it, some no one else will. And it's just like, it's like piles on, you know what I mean? And then the kids so, find you in the corner eating a tub of ice cream. And you know, I'm not a stress eater. <laughs> down in, oh, that's what I would do. <laughs> no, that's no. a king kong size bag of popcorn i'm just gonna take that with me I'll we see eat a lot of celery in this house i'm oh. not gonna lie we oh. go to costco and buy those huge costco bags of celery that's so smart that's so smart yeah I that's, think actually, that's a huge that's... tip that's a great tip yeah you are welcome <laughs> i do like celery. Yeah, sorry. I was just gonna say i think the one thing the pandemic has really forced us to learn to do and and i'm still not 
very good at it is boundaries, creating boundaries in every part of our life because everything's mushed together now, right? Before you could go to work and come back home and kids would go to school and come back home. But now those boundaries are are merged and blurry. And so saying no now is even more challenging than maybe it used to be or, or creating boundaries around your time between work. And so caregivers are saying, you know, how do you, how do you juggle being there for the kids? Um, and this is two of my experience, juggle being there for your, your kids in the way you want to be, but then also juggling being maybe caregiver to an elderly parent or mm-hmm. um, being an employer or an employee where there's expectations. And then, you know, there's so many things that then just get kind of blurred. And so I think that makes it even more challenging as you're saying, Rebecca, to just say no as well, I think, um, yeah. especially during these times. I've had that role. My mom passed away two years ago, but I was her primary support for a number of years before that. And it was balancing her needs. I've been an entrepreneur since 2013. So balancing growing my business, balancing what my son needed because he was still in high school and had to advocate strongly. Um, And I can't imagine having to do all of that and put the layer of the pandemic on top of that. So if we were to recap some of the things that have been shared to help caregivers and youth and children and um, autistic self-advocates, some some tips and tricks, first and foremost is acknowledging that this has been stinking hard, that it's, it's hard. And please don't ever be unkind to yourself thinking that you're not doing well because nobody has a, a manual with how to deal with this. And the weird feelings come up and you're not sure what to do with them. And if you add a layer of complexity with that word that I can't say, um, appreciate that. I will get it eventually. Um, I had to learn to say Haudenosaunee and it took me a week (laughs) and I taught anatomy and physiology and what have you. You think I'd be better at that, but please be kind to yourself that this has been hard and everybody is doing the best they can and it, it creates the need for these types of incredible studies that the University of Calgary has been behind. So out of, out of this conversation today, even not just the study, but there's been some great tips. So if we could summarize like some of the top things, um, I think Rebecca kicked off with sleep, some type of routine, celery, uh, apparently celery, is a big one. Yeah, which I wish I ate more. Yeah. Trying to stay connected to your support network of professionals like in person, if you can, and just really advocating for the services that you need to be in the format that you need them to be in. As safely as possible. So, you know, understanding that there are working around the constraints because, you know, fortunately right now, this, this particular podcast panel is coming to you from Ontario, BC and Calgary. Um, and each province is experiencing COVID differently right now, because I think BC is on its way out. It's, it seems to be leveling off. Um, Alberta is having a bit of a poo storm. <laughs> it's been it's a good way of saying it. Well, yeah. it's been intriguing to watch. Um, and then Ontario has had its own interesting premier situation <laughs> happening. Yes. So sleep diet, be kind, recognizing it's hard. Um, were there any, some things that stood out from, from your caregivers that they're trying? Yeah, I think staying connected to other supports in your life is super important as well, as much as you can. I know 
in the beginning of pandemic, you know, different kinds of Zoom dates were happening. And I think that's sort of diminished over time, or at least it has in my life, just because we're all Zoom fatigued. But seeing social support is definitely something that helps mitigate mental health and or mental health issues like anxiety and depression um, and that feeling of languish. And so I think if caregivers can really try to stay connected both to their professional supports, as Rebecca talked about, but also those social supports that really fill your bucket or make you feel good, I think are super important. And Kaylin, what did you find was sort of a common thing that came up? Yeah, I would echo a lot of those same points. I think those have, we've we've heard about those for sure in the data that I've looked at. I would really echo the service piece that Rebecca has commented on that just came out so clearly that having access to professional services in a way that meets the family's needs is so important. Um, And then I think families definitely have shared creative ways that they are finding rest and rejuvenation and wellness within the constraints that they're working with. So we have heard of families finding really neat ways that they're connecting in a way that maybe they hadn't prior to the pandemic. So mm-hmm. find, you know, working those into routine as best as possible. And then just that patience with, with yourself, I think, because it is really hard. Um, and a lot of individuals are trying to use the coping skills that they have, but they just don't always fit right now. And that's- Well, who can, like nobody uh, would have prepared for this. Yeah. yeah. There's no course you've ever taken that's going. So by the way, when the pandemic hits during your lifetime, this yeah. is what you got to do. And I think never happened. that caregivers have spoken about is strategies that work well for their family just aren't available. So if library time is what keeps your family well, and that is not a service available to you, you're kind of at a loss for those coping strategies that you know work for your family. And so people have to have had to get creative and that's really hard. Um, but we've heard very nice examples of families finding their way through that as well. So we've had a lot of community, um, what do you call them? Curbside libraries popping up. So people have built these little, I shouldn't say a little, they're kind of enormous birdhouses. Um, and then they post on there. So I live in Elizabeth gardens in Burlington, ironic. Um, and people have built these sharing libraries, which have been fantastic. Um, I donated a ton of books and this woman took them her 90 year old grandmother was in long-term care could no longer access library services i'm like here you go <laughs> load it up enjoy yeah and she's like do you want them back i'm like nope share them amongst the long-term care facility whoever can benefit from them great so if that's something that if library time and book time is important to you you know is there a, a curbside library happening or can you set up a book exchange a safe book exchange with a neighbor or your neighborhood. Um, magazines are always super cool. Is it something? Go ahead, Rebecca. Sorry. There are lots of like community Facebook pages and stuff like that where you can kind of go on and and suss out if there are those kind of like yeah, toy community swaps. libraries and yeah. stuff like that going on. Because I think um, I I said earlier if you could recreate that predictability and familiarity in your family life, it's going to be so much, it's things will go much more smoothly, especially if like, there are a lot of um, in autistic families, a lot of times one or more of the parents are also um, autistic. Mm -hmm. So 
and they're self-diagnosed or they're not diagnosed and things like that. Um, so just this is a great idea just to have the things that are predictable and familiar and supportive. finding a way to make that happen. Yes. Like every Friday we are going to listen to an auditory book or, you know, we're going to do X. Yeah, I totally, I totally like agree. have, um, you know, uh, peace with yourself and grace with yourself that your routines have been taken away, understanding that, but knowing that you can recreate and be creative with new routines. Yep. I think even if it's something as that. simple as dinner around the table every night, um, something, there are ways. Um, so we are going to begin to wrap up. Are there any final recommendations from like, what's the, the ongoing component of the project. So you're coming to the end. She no, asked. So we, oh, I'm sorry. No, no. Was... Um, okay. Uh, so we are in the process of hoping to extend this to a wave two data collection where we've um, love to hear back from caregivers who participated um, in our previous study to understand sort of any changes or how things have gone in the last year. But we're also hoping to engage um, self-advocates um, to get perspectives um, from autistic individuals themselves to understand how the pandemic has impacted them. Um, and that's been something we've been really invested in from the get-go with just a few hiccups that have happened over time that have sort of impacted us. Um, Damn technology. So, yes, technology has not been our friend um, throughout this process. So that is our goal, um, recognizing that I think even if restrictions open up, as Rebecca sort of already highlighted, what happens then? And so I, I really want to understand the long-term impacts of, of this as well in our autistic community and, and, and how that might be the same or different from people who self-identify being neurodivergent in other ways as well. So um, that's sort of my overall goal. And so for contact information, what would be the best way if somebody's listened to this and they're intrigued and they want to participate and support you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, so contacting um, me by email would be great or our lab. So we, I'm the director of the Enhanced Lab. Um, our email address is um, enhancedlab at ucalgary.ca. Um, and people who are interested in learning more about the Families Facing COVID study, we have a website, um, it's Families Facing COVID-19. Um, dot com, I think. Uh, if that's wrong, we'll have to maybe edit that, Elizabeth. But um, definitely, uh, I would love to connect with people and hear, hear their experiences as well. So we'll include that information just for folks, if you're interested, I'll include that um, in the description of the podcast. And then when this is put out through, through CASTA and other means, we can add that contact information and those websites there. So never fear, you'll be able to find it. Um, if they were to visit the University of Calgary website, is that another means to kind of? Yeah, if you go to the U of C website, uh, just maybe search for the study name or my name in particular, Carly McMorris, and, and it should come up that way as well. We um, did a, a news story uh, through the university as well with caregivers giving their insight and, and some really great quotes came up through that if people are interested in reading it, so they'd find it there. Oh, fantastic. Okay. So there's multiple ways to find more information, but if you're looking to participate, then if you want to get in touch with Carly um, or look up the study, there's, we'll share all of that again. Um, but thank you so much for your time today, ladies. I know, weirdly, I feel so much better knowing that I'm not the only one having a Jedi mind trick every other day. Um, 
on, on how to deal with this and watching my own son, you know, go through some ups and downs and watch how our family is, is dealing with it. Um, it's been an interesting 642 years and, uh, hopefully it'll be, hopefully it'll be done soon. Yeah. We'll figure it out. But thank you very much, ladies. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having thank me. You. You're very, very welcome. Anytime. Uh, so we're going to, so the ladies are going to stay on, but we're going to wrap up for today. Uh, so thank you for joining us, everybody, today. If you want more information around CASDA, you can visit casda.ca. That's C-A-S-D-A dot C-A. Again, for the, the study, uh, Families Facing COVID-19 or Families Facing COVID, I would type it in and it will pop up or try and visit the website. Better safe than sorry. You can also go to the University of Calgary website, type in Carly McMorris. Uh, she'll pop up. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And then looking forward to the results when everything comes in and we see how families have coped and thrived and hopefully are moving forward. Okay. Thanks very much, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining the conversation about the National Autism Strategy. CASDA is a comprehensive network of autistic Canadians and autism-focused organizations. Our members are united by the shared vision that a National Autism Strategy will create improvements in the lives of autistic people for generations to come. Please visit casda.ca to learn more and keep the conversation going.